Hello, and welcome to Expected Value, a podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media Networks, and our guest this week is, I think, one of the most influential people in mainstream sports analytics over the last quarter century. His name is Jeff Bennett, the ESPN vice president who oversees their stats and information group, which includes the sports analytics team and the content research team that contribute to every ESPN platform. Now, Jeff's life and career path have basically run parallel to the rise of stats and analytics in sports. As we'll discuss, he joined ESPN in 1994 when he started as a videotape archivist. He then became a researcher the following year, and he worked on shows including the 11 p.m. Sports Center with Keith Olbermann and Dan Patrick. Jeff was the lead Baseball Tonight researcher from 2000 to 2003. And he then moved into managing and leading the research department in Stats and Info on the Whole. And in 2010, he founded ESPN's sports analytics team. In our conversation, Jeff will explain what ESPN Stats and Information Group does exactly, how he got into sports and stats, his early years at ESPN, beginning to work better statistics into shows like Baseball Tonight, founding the sports analytics team, developing metrics like total quarterback rating and the various power indices, working with the NFL's NGS data, and the future of sports analytics. One note on a personal level and in the interest of full disclosure, Jeff also played an important part in my life. He hired me at ESPN back in 2008 and was my boss for 10 years, giving me plenty of amazing opportunities, including covering World Cups on site. So maybe I'm a little biased, but I'm not exaggerating really by saying that Jeff has been a driving force in ESPN Stats and Info for 25 years and that ESPN has played a key role in making stats and metrics more accessible and commonplace in the sports media world. So I think you'll enjoy this behind-the-scenes look at ESPN's Stats and Information Group. Here's my conversation with ESPN Vice President Jeff Bennett. We are joined here on Expected Value by Jeff Bennett, Vice President of ESPN's Stats and Information Group, commonly known as SIG at ESPN. Jeff, welcome to the show. Let's start at a kind of a high-level overview of the department you oversee. Broadly speaking, what does the Stats and Information Group do at ESPN? Cool. Thanks for having me, Paul. At the Stats Information Group, simply, we tell stories with sports data. And we have a few different groups that do that in part of our, our larger group. The Stats Information Group in total is a little over 200 people. It's about 220. Um, about 140 of those are full-timers. And then we have about 80 people uh, that are more seasonal around the college season, which I'll explain this in a minute. Um, but the, the three main tent poles of the Stats Information Group are our SIG content group, and that is our researchers uh, and our bottom line editors. So they're in charge of fan-facing um, content, um, where they're taking information, statistics, news items, and telling stories, uh, either be working directly with show groups uh, studio shows like Sports Center or um, NFL Countdown, uh, or working with the supporting the event broadcasts, um, which there are many across all sports. And then uh, same thing for working with the digital writers and editors and supporting all of our digital platforms and ESPN Audio as well. So really any platform that has information around on the field performance uh, runs through SIG and that's supported through the research staff. And then uh, in that same area, uh, working closely are the bottom line editors who are taking that information, um, the automated scores, the news, working with the news group, and then, uh, you know, in the finite character space, telling stories about what's happening in the world of sports. Mm-hmm. So that's a big group of people right there. The other group of people that makes up probably half of our entire group is the data side, the data management. So um, that's our stats and analysis team. 
And that's a big data newsroom that is taking in data from sites, whether it be press boxes, uh, through the league, or creating data ourselves through native tools. And we do that for, again, sports all across the world. Um, for instance, for soccer, we oversee over 220 different soccer leagues across the globe. And that supports all of ESPN's data, uh, not just the ESPN.com we know in America, but the the uh, dozen additions across the world that have very localized uh, data needs, and the same thing for sports centers in Argentina or Brazil. Um, so all that data comes through, again, the same newsroom here in, in Bristol, Connecticut, and that kind of gets pushed out as a single source of automation for our you know, ESPN app. And again, the SIG content team takes that data and other things they look up themselves and then tell stories. So that's the majority of the group, probably 200 to 220. And then about a dozen people are focused on the sports analytics team. And that is the higher level people. They're not in live production like all the people I mentioned previously, uh, but they're working on more projects, predictive metrics, you know, analytics, storytelling, and creating tools and metrics that the people and the research and the bottom line staffs can utilize to tell deeper stories beyond what has been traditionally been available to, uh, to sports media for many years. So I'd like to kind of trace your career path of sorts, because I think it parallels the rise of sports data and analytics quite well. Let's just start way back before even you're in college. Like from a sports number standpoint, what are the sort of things that you were drawn to as a kid that kind of pushed you down this general career arc? Sure. So baseball cards, backs of baseball cards, uh, reading about baseball in any sort of periodicals, you know, newspapers with reading every box square I get my hands on, especially on Sunday mornings with the mm -hmm. league leaders, you know, with introduction of computers, with, you know, I had a Commodore 64, so like micro league baseball, um, more stat driven things of that nature. Jeff Sagarin made an uh, amazing, just total data college basketball game that I, I played, simulated hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of games in the mid 80s. Um, and uh, Stratomac baseball, you know, keeping a uh, score with my friends. And yeah. I have in my mom's attic probably hundreds and hundreds of score sheets still to this day. <laughs> so remember those games that like look like the real games. So those are some of the things just mm -hmm. but uh, sports data, you know, was very limited back then, of course, when I was yeah. growing up. But I would just try to, uh, you know, dive into that as much as possible. So you went to college at Worcester Polytechnic Institute in Massachusetts, and you majored in applied math. What did you think at that point, if we're talking you know, early, mid-90s, like what did you think you would do or wanted to do with a, the combination of a math degree and a love of sports? Yeah, if I only knew that jobs like this existed back when I went to college. I, I Obviously, mm -hmm. I knew of Bill James. I knew of the Elias Sports Bureau. I read those types of abstracts and analysts uh, in the late 80s. I was aware there were statisticians in the booth for media, um, you know, basically help, helping the talent call uh, you know, on radio or on TV and doing basic stats. I thought there could be a job like that working at Fenway Park and, you know, in the booth uh, for the radio game for the Red Sox. But I didn't really have a good plan, honestly. Uh, yeah. I figured I was going to WPI, even though it's an engineering school. I was one of the few non-engineers. Um, but math was uh, something I was more interested in than engineering. And it did, you know, I thought it was, hey, it was numbers. Um, I did some product work on sports. Uh, so I was able to choose my own topics and do some of that. But I didn't have the foresight or uh, the availability of actual sports data to propose a real statistical project. Um, it was more like other kind of research projects for sports. So I really wish I could have made that connection earlier. I wish there was baseball reference when I was in college. <laughs> I wish there was the internet when I was in yeah. college. 
uh, those things would have been made my job a lot easier, uh, or at least expanded my horizons on what was possible. So I really lucked out and how it all came together for me. So I think part of the lucking out you're referring to is when ESPN ended the picture for you again in the mid nineties, how did you get in the door there? And what was your first job at ESPN? Again, it's, it's a lot of luck. Um, I'm very fortunate uh, that I'm still here. But yeah, I started in 1994. I graduated from WPI in May of 1994. And I didn't have any job offers or any relative uh, relevant internships in college. Uh, my goal was to just survive college. Uh, I was also on the wrestling team. So I, I, that took up a lot of my time. And then we, I graduated and took a deep breath. We moved home, had a very local job moving furniture in the summer of 1994. And then when my uh, all my friends at the moving company went back to school around Labor Day, I realized that uh, it was just me and like the lifetime movers, and I probably needed a better plan. <laughs> um, I was fortunate that summer that uh, my cousin um, was working at ESPN, and he had an entry-level position um, in a group called the Sports Center Archives, which completely doesn't exist anymore. It was really about tapes, uh, beta tapes that were used to stock shelves and tape the games on. And he had gotten promoted and was in good standing. And we had a family summer party just down the road in Southern Connecticut for one of my cousins graduating something or getting married. I don't remember exactly. So he went like, you know, the four miles down the road and he, he could just walk in back then. And he gave me a little tour on a Sunday and it was July 10th of 1994. It was during the World Cup. We went through screening and everyone was gathered around a shootout. I think it was like Romania was playing somebody. Paul, I'm sure you can check me on that. Um, and I was like, wow, I'm at, ES I'm at ESPN. And, um, you know, he, uh, he he said, you know, my, my boss, if there has an opening, you know, I could put your name in. And sure enough, about maybe a month later, you know, his old boss was looking for somebody. And I interviewed and I took a very basic sports quiz and I had a pulse. Uh, and I had a cousin who was in good standing there and I got the job and I started, uh, in late September of 1994. So I, I just passed my 25th anniversary. So originally you were basically just putting tapes on, on shelves and such. How did you transition over to the research department? Yeah, it was the most entry level temporary job you possibly could have at that time. It was basically minimum pay. I have a, a letter still in my office drawers, that's a, like a temporary employment, 725 an hour job. Mm -hmm. um, but it was great for networking because everyone needed tapes back then and would come down. And you had to have a, a certain level of sports knowledge because we were making decisions about like which parts of games. We didn't have an infinite amount of space and tapes took up a lot of space. So we would have to know like a baseball game would be on three different tapes, innings one through three, four through six and seven through nine. <laughs> and we would have to know which parts of that game we want to keep for two weeks, keep for the whole season or there's some amazing video or the game was so incredible or, or you know milestone that you want to keep that tape forever and put it in the library. So we had this kind of situation that we were always doing that for all different sports. Um, so I got to meet a lot of people and network a lot of people. But my goal was, of course, and no one's goal was to forever push tapes in there. And that right. job really was a very transitive job. That's why there's a lot of openings, even though there's only three people, because people were getting full time jobs because as long as you were coming to work every way every day and networking, you know, there was opportunity. And I knew I wanted to be a researcher. I knew I wanted to be a baseball tonight researcher. I didn't have a plan how to get that job. I didn't even really know what the baseball tonight researcher did, but I knew they did stuff with sports statistics, especially baseball statistics. So that I would tell everyone that's what I wanted to do. And then about 10 months after starting in the company, there was a research, research position that someone floated to me. They said, Hey, you know, my boss is looking for, um, a college football researcher for the fall of 1995. And even though college football, especially going to a division three school, 
mm-hmm. you know, it's probably my fifth or sixth best sport that I was most knowledgeable on, even though I, I certainly liked it. I interview, interviewed for that job because I heard the word research. I thought that was a good place to start. And I got the job. And next thing I knew, I had 120 media guides in my closet at my parents' house where I was spending all my downtime reading through media guides. And I just, I lived and breathed everything about college football in the summer. I mean, the fall of 1995, Eddie George won the Heisman, Nebraska never lost. And I worked very closely with Mike Tirico and Chris Fowler, and especially Mike on all day on Saturdays. Uh, And I learned so much about TV from Mike Tirico. Uh, who's a tremendous person and a real mentor to me. And that led to working, even though I wasn't part of the full-time research staff, I was a college football seasonal researcher, again, not a full-time job, mm-hmm. but I worked and made connections in the actual research department. So when that season ended and I was lucky enough to actually attend and work the Heisman Trophy ceremony, again, luck have it, they had an opening in the full-time group. And I did an interview for that. And you know, a week later, I was offered the job and observing the overnight sports center. And that was going to be my show starting in two weeks. And here you go. And now I'm a full-timer and I've been obviously a full-time ever since then. That's great. You talked about all the media guides. So how did you do the research job back then? You obviously didn't have databases and spreadsheets and websites barely existed. Now everything's on a computer and almost none of that was around when you started as a researcher. So how did you do the job back then with far fewer and far different resources? Uh, slower, uh, much more <laughs> manual. Yeah, media guides were essential, as was support from the, the schools and conferences. So a lot of faxing uh, game notes um, and then you know reading all the game notes and you know getting pronunciation guides and team records. Um, it was just it was really research in the most manual sense. Mm-hmm. We didn't have email. We didn't even I didn't have my own phone, but I was on like everyone needed me because I was the researcher for all event for ESPN. Now we did way fewer college football games in 1995 than now, obviously, but you know, for all the games on our air Thursday nights, you know, a couple few on Saturdays, um, and then all the studio wraps around that I was the researcher and, you know, it paged me over the paging system and I was always on call and it was literally my job for four plus months where I did nothing but throw myself into that role and I do a sink or swim for me and I want to impress them. I remember when I was there, I think it was around 2010, and I got war on a graphic for the 6 p.m. Sports Center. I was very excited. What's an example of advanced stat, and I kind of put that in quotes, that you remember getting on the air, you know, pr- probably baseball tire or, or anything that you remember back in the day that was advanced at the time? Probably the early 2000s, I was able to create a few statistics for ESPN that were basic efficiency stats, essentially. And I wasn't even really aware of what was happening with baseball perspectives, at least having a full appreciation for what the sabermetrics community was, you know, exploding on the message boards and things like that were starting to take root, especially uh, in a few front offices around the league. Um, But just figuring out, just knowing that the basic statistics um, that we were using continuously, uh, even on a show like Baseball Tonight, um, I was able to get some free reign to figuring out, you know, better ways to look at bases per plate appearance, looking at pitchers, uh, I don't even know it, but the three true outcomes and kind of looking at a way to, you know, looking at bases allowed uh, on walks, hit by pitches and home runs and, you know, just per nine and just coming up with things and putting it on the air rather than, you know, just the traditional statistics that my predecessors had always used. And again, far from the advanced stuff that was probably percolating unbeknownst mm-hmm. to me, but I soon became aware just as I started diving into it. Um, but yeah, I remember just 
you know, the push for getting OPS into shows like, you know, that was like a struggle. That was like conference calls mm-hmm. to get it on Sunday Night Baseball and to, you know, to, you know, we had people that were, were willing to push. And behind the scenes, uh, there was an executive named John Walsh, who's a legend at ESPN, uh, especially from Sports Center and journalism. But he also is a diehard stat, you know, nerd, goes to Sloan every year, or most years. Uh, and he wanted to create some sort of, you know, in the once he read Moneyball, like that was it. And he wanted to create some sort of quantitative analysis team at ESPN in the mid 2000s. And it took a few years to get root, you know, gain root, but it did eventually uh, spur us to create the uh, sports analytics team. All right, so we're going to fast forward through kind of your years of researching Sports Center, Baseball Tonight. Uh, you headed up the research department for several years as it grew in size and influence. And then in 2010, you started the sports analytics team within SIG. So how and why did the need for this team come about? Yeah, so we wanted to be better representative, better representative of what was happening with front offices. And if we figured if we were covering transactions, trades, all this stuff, like we, of course we do, that we needed to have more intel on how and why decisions are being made by teams. And one of the ways to do that, we thought, was to hire some people that were just kind of focused on understanding these higher level concepts and understanding data. Um, And I think that the the original charter of it was was fairly benign compared to what we really saw the potential we actually could do with sports data on our own. Um, But yeah, so it was just trying to get a sense of you know, how can we arm our storytellers, our anchors, our analysts, which are mostly former players and coaches, uh, our writers, with better information than just what what has been done in sports media since the history of, of statistics making on, make it onto sports media, especially on the television side. Um, so we want to really have a group that lived and breathed this and could kind of push the envelope and educate. And it was all about education and communication, mm-hmm. especially in the early years. Um, but it was getting people to understand not just what our team was working on and trying to create, but also just was out there. Again, 2012, Mike Trout versus Miguel Cabrera and yeah. making sure everyone understood war <laughs> and right. why there were two legitimate sides to the AL MVP argument. Um, you know, maybe John Hollinger already had PR for several years on ESPN.com, but back then, the TV side of NBA coverage had no awareness of that. Mm-hmm. They had no awareness. There's a following, no awareness, awareness of the work of, of the pioneers in the NBA space like Dean Oliver. So we were bridging that gap. It wasn't just the stuff that our team was creating. It was just like making sure people understood what the best tools out there were uh, because we were using a lot of blunt instruments to tell stories. What were some of the keys that you and the group found about kind of evangelizing these metrics and ideas to producers, to talent, to kind of non-analytics types? Yeah, well, the, the most important thing was that I hired Dean Oliver away from the Denver Nuggets. That was a <laughs> uh-huh. game changer for ESPN and certainly a, a career changer for me. Um, Dean was part of our committee uh, while still being a Nuggets. As I was putting the team together, where we hired, made our first two hires, we were started with a three-person team and me. That's that was the, the head count that we were able to carve out to you know have humble humble beginnings. Uh, and we already had two people internally. We had Alok Patani, who was a brilliant person that we hired in the research department. Um, that's kind of when the writing was on the wall that we wanted to move towards an analytics team at some point. So Alok was a, uh, a two-time intern in the summer. 
Uh, and then we hired him as a show researcher, but he was always, you know, pushing and doing higher level concepts. His job wasn't going to do sports center for the rest of his life. We wanted to make sure that, you know, we had a small window to retain him and really be serious in the sports analytics space. Uh, we had your colleague, Albert Licarda, um, who was on our data side and stats analysis. Again, you know, he had that kind of background through college, you know, he had a master's and getting him in here. And he was someone that, you know, really understood sports data and had a could bring the database side where Alok had more of like the um, the specialist side and more about algorithms and understanding those concepts of, of storytelling coming from his research background. And I had one more spot and I got wind from someone that knew him that, you know, with the NBA lockout on the horizon, that Dean might be interested in, in changing jobs. And then I approached Dean and we, you know, we had a relationship as he was helping me evaluate Alok and Albert and other people's um, uh, abilities technically in uh, proficiency to join the team. And he kind of signed off on those two. So I know he knew two of the three people. And then that last spot, that just kind of fell into place where we had him out here and, and really explained the vision of what we wanted to do. And he saw even way further than I could what the vision could be around taking what really is the world's best sports data uh, and unlocking that uh, and creating frameworks for repeatable metrics and processes and getting things on ESPN.com far more than I was probably uh, thinking about where I was more about the day-to-day storytelling, which is kind mm-hmm. of what my research background is. And it right. was like automated processes. And like, these are things that can, we don't have to be here 24 seven. These are things that can live on, but it needs education. And he had a lot of practice, obviously communicating things to George Carl or with the Sonics previously. Um, and he, so he was always communicating to other assistant GMs or GMs, coaches and players. So that was a natural to come here talking to our analysts because they're former players and coaches as well. And sometimes GMs. So one of your first major projects as an analytics team was developing the total QBR metric. Why was that one of the first ones? And what was the process for putting that together? So that was something that we had been kicking around for a couple of years. Uh, Trent Trent Dilfer was an analyst here at ESPN, and he was anti-passer rating, NFL passer rating. Many many people were, too, at that point. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to create like a clutch time quarterback, and he had these ideas. And and we had already been... um, Within the stats analysis group, we had been accumulating uh, tracking data, um, video tracking, broadcast data uh, for several seasons where we were looking at all the things that supplemented that, that weren't coming through the uh, play-by-play feed, uh, how far the ball traveled in the air, air yards, you know, was it a blitz, you know, you know, things like that. And we had this great data set um, that we tied together to the play-by-play, and that was something that we thought we could, you know, potentially tell better quarterback stories because we had more information. It just so happened that when I started the team, it also happened to be um, coinciding with a, a major ESPN initiative called the Year of the Quarterback, which was to all of 2011. Uh, very similar to what's happening now with uh, College Football 150. It's basically the same group that's doing that that did it seven, eight years ago. But Year of the Quarterback was all these content pieces across platform telling a story about quarterbacks at all levels of you know youth football all the way, of course, through the NFL. And uh, one of the executive producers, uh, John Dahl, really was interested in having some sort of legacy piece at the end of the Year of the Quarterback that would live on beyond when the content ran out in 2011. And he hated passer rating. So, you know, we kicked a bunch of things around and he was all in on the total quarterback rating. He thought it was great. And, you know, we thought we could do this and take advantage of the other data set I mentioned. And then Dean just was like, you know, took that like 10 degrees beyond that with a division of credit 
and really creating these rules of, you know, you know, using expected points and win probability frameworks at the beginning to be more objective of, of, of team success, and then figuring out how the, how much of the quarterback contributed on each of those uh, plays, based on um, you know all those kind of details of uh, that we were tracking off the broadcast video, and create the set of rules that divided credit after the team level of the expected points uh, added or lost on every play, um, with a little bit of a analysis and. Um, uh, flavor of win probability. So we were in blowout situations, kind of de-weighting some right. of those things as well. And Michael Vick was a star quarterback at that time. And he, he had some great passer rating games, but you know, his legs were a huge part of him and those just didn't count in passer rating. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were also some quarterbacks that had, you know, that were pretty famous. It took tons of sacks that weren't counted in passer ratings and things like that. So that all kind of fell together for us in place. And we're, uh, we worked on, uh, understanding what we wanted to do, and Dean coded uh, incredibly uh, all all of his downtime. The the algorithm original originally, and then we got it to ESPN.com, and we had a one hour primetime special on a Friday yeah. night in August, introducing the show, hosted by the the Monday Night Football talent, um, and we were off and running right right before the the start of the 2011 season. One of the latest things you guys have rolled out is the player impact rating for college football, which covers all the positions. Uh, how did that one come about? And what are you, I know we're in this early stages of it, what are you hoping can be done with it? Yeah, so it's very similar to what we did with the QBR because that was actually born out of the college football 150 uh, initiative. And the same executive, John Dahl, who is, <laughs> is just as anti, you know, not anti Heisman, but he thinks right. that Heisman is just a quarterback position, just a right. quarterback award. And he wanted, again, uh, what could our team do um, that would be a legacy metric for college football? So, you know, I, I filled him in on all the things we've been doing since 2013, because I really do think we're at the forefront of college football analytics already uh-huh. uh, with what we did to get ready for the um, the end of the BCS era, transitioning to the CFP with all our team level statistics and we have a college version of QBR. So we have a good suite of metrics already where I think that any one of those could have um, facilitated what he wanted us to do, uh, but we, he wants something different. So we looked at it, you know, is there a way to create essentially an adjusted plus minus at the college football level uh, for all 130 uh, FBS teams and all 22 players on the field at all time? And that's really ambitious because this, this is not the NFL, besides having right. you know, four, four times as many teams, is the level of data is not such. It's not just 32 press boxes or 31 press boxes because there's two teams in the same stadium. You know, these are 130 plus different press boxes and different levels of data. And knowing who's on the field for every play is not something that comes through traditional data. Um, so we had to find out how to access and maybe work with a vendor who creates it for us. And then, you know, we're working on the analysis side and Paul Sabin, one of our specialists worked on the adjusted plus minus framework, got a a sponsor with, with a Sony PlayStation who was really interested in, you know, a rating system from zero to 100, uh, similar to what they do for their games. Uh, So they sponsor it this year and they're part of a larger initiative of sponsoring the CFB 150. Um, But yeah, it's, it's a pretty cool metric. One thing, things we learned quickly looking at, because it's all scaled by position, is it, the quarterbacks are by far the most important position. So sorry, uh, sorry, John Dahl, the quarterbacks <laughs> are still the highest. But we, we, because we scale up by position, they're still going to be. Um, right. Every position is going to have someone in the high nineties. It's good, and I think we'll we'll try to get Paul Saban on probably close to Heisman time to talk impact rating and, and things along those lines. NGS is something that's really come to the NFL last couple of years, especially on the public front. I know you've got a win rates for pass rushing, pass blocking. Give me the gist of what ESPN has done with the NGS data and what you think might be uh, the future for that. So hiring Brian Burke 
similar to hiring uh, Dean Aller, was mm-hmm. positioning ourselves for when we got access to this data. Uh, Brian, NFL pioneer uh, from the analytics perspective, um, you know, very popular website and had a lot of work uh, experience working with teams as a consultant. Very bright, of course. And we knew from our relationship with the NFL that someday we'd have the opportunity to obtain uh, the NFL tracking data. So once we got it, again, Brian, like Dean, has a vision. Um, when What are the, some of the harder stories to tell or what are the things that people have been trying to do but without actually knowing the XY, XYZ, haven't been able to do in the past? So trying to be objective as possible. So the, you know, the pass rush win rates, pass blocking win rates – you know, with chips in the pads, you know, what quarterback uh, average time to throw is about 2.5 seconds, uh, looking for orientation and who beats the block and creating a framework there to an, analyze the trenches has allowed us to tell so many stories and and quantify performance on a way that was never been able to do uh, for those positions outside of sacks, certainly not for the offensive linemen other than maybe snaps or team level statistics, but very hard to attribute anything uh, individually to them. So that's been something that's been uh, fantastic for us. Teddy Bruschi, our analyst, is probably the one that's most into it. He does a really good mm-hmm. job explaining it. Uh, and Brian has a bunch of other ideas around uh, pass coverage, defense class. You know, teaching models, teaching, creating a model to to learn off the data and automatically uh, quantify. You know, what kind of uh, I think up to ten different levels of pass coverage without having humans chart that. Now we're able to look at, you know, what Drew Brees does versus the Tampa two or whatever, um, look at the sample size. And then in game, we can look at live how often, uh, you know, a team is playing the de- t- different types of defenses and, and right, actually yeah. put that into a game broadcast rather than having to wait till even a tracking company or ourselves track it the next day or later that day. Now we can do it live because of the data feed that we get from the NFL. So it's uh, working with the NFL on certain things and then, um, having their permission to kind of ex- you know, experiment on certain other things, again, just to make sure that we are at the cutting edge of storytelling with the NFL, such an important property for us. Give you one final full question before we get to some quicker hitters. What is next for analytics at ESPN? This could be something that's percolating. You want to tease, or you know, something blue sky, something that you would like to do at some point. What's next for the analytics group? A couple of generic answers. Um, you know, getting anything with player tracking whether it be baseball, basketball, football, maybe soccer, um, you know, player tracking isn't going away and we want to continue to be at the forefront of innovation, uh, leveraging player tracking. So those are just things that we're kind of always kicking around ideas and looking at what our access is to, uh, you know, what we have through certain leagues and, and what we can do maybe do ourselves and taking that one step further. Um, you know, what, what's player tracking look like at the collegiate level? Is that possible? I don't know if fair pay to play is going to impact that or not. Uh, who mm-hmm. owns the rights for college data and college athletes? But college football player tracking, you know, can only imagine what it would be like for spinning up through the draft. Uh, college basketball, uh, some major conference college basketball storytelling, auto, you know, better automated graphics during a game broadcast to insights to, you know, quantifying Zion, even t- five different ways you can't currently do. that um, has a lot of potential. So things of that nature, we're still discussing and working with other partners through ESPN about you know what the landscape looks like in that regard. For our team right now, I, um, besides those big lofty situations we're talking about, it's our NBA metrics, you know, making it more the team basketball power index more at a player level. 
It's mm-hmm. all about the players. And it's, we just really need to be at a, a place where we can be more um, quick to react to either NBA players resting or switching teams um, before. And now we have a model that learns quickly, but wor- learning quickly is not fast enough for the way the right. NBA, how transitive it is with the players uh, switching the fortunes of a franchise in a heartbeat or teaming up to do so. And then sports betting, things around sports betting and that sports mm-hmm. data, a lot of opportunity around that that we're working on some uh, some products, uh, hopefully Ford facing and behind the scenes as well all right we're gonna rip through a whole bunch of different questions quick hitting things to wrap things up here uh what is your favorite number and why number eight that's an easy one uh yaz growing up carl mm-hmm. he wore number eight i was born in august uh it's just a cool number it's it's just it's such an easy answer for me and Yaz, would that be your favorite athlete or is somebody else kind of take growing that up yaz was my boyhood idol even though his end of his career was when i was still you know preteen uh larry bird was also you know, the king of growing up around here everyone loved larry bird they're sure. a celtics fan of course but as i got a little bit older um probably the last athlete i'll ever really really feel this way about because now that i'm too old they're all younger than me now was pedro mm-hmm. martinez the great pedro martinez i i have uh, an amazing affinity for all things pedro best or favorite game that you've been to in person a couple answers to this. I'm sorry, it's not rapid fire. Uh, All right. Most obscure game was the Jeff Stone game in 1990 for the Red Sox. It was late September, I think it was September 28th, 1990. Uh, he was a mostly known as a Philly, uh, but he was a Red Sox for a very short amount of time. Hit a huge bases loaded ninth inning uh, multi-run hit. They made a two-run single or double. Mm-hmm. Red Sox beat the Blue Jays. If they had lost that game, which they were losing in that back-and-forth game the whole game, uh, Blue Jays would have tied them with four, four or five games to go for the division lead. Um, so anyway, that was a huge game. Pedro Clemens, uh, May 28th, not 2000 at Yankee stadium was zero, zero into the, into the ninth and Trot Nixon hit a two run homer. Both mm-hmm. guys went the distance on Sunday night baseball. And I was at the most famous game I was probably at was probably the Pedro Zimmer fight, but the Red Sox lost that one. All right. Like a lot of researchers, former researchers, you have a great memory for information that some people call useless. And I would say that's what makes researchers great in a lot of ways. I don't want you to rattle off a list of things, but what are the random things that you'd say you're kind of known for knowing? Yeah, I'd say I'm known for knowing probably two things. Um, Baseball card, the fronts of baseball cards as well. I know, of course, the backs of baseball cards, uh, but the that that's useful. The backs of baseball cards, the front of baseball cards, not really useful. That's more of a parlor <laughs> trick. My sweet spot is tops from 1979 to 1985 with the exception of 1981, because that was a messed up year with Don Ross and Fleer. And I was collecting all three, but had no complete sets, but that's yeah. probably my, my sweet spot. I'm definitely rusty compared to what I was probably 10 years ago, but there was a point where I could really with high confidence name from that year, almost any player, what they describe their picture looked like. Uh, and the, and the other thing is athletes birthdays. Mm-hmm. There's probably a time, especially in my researcher days where I could probably name 600 people and know exactly what the birth, <laughs> their birthdays are. And for me, that was because it was important for work. I, right. How old is LeBron James? Well, he's 12, 30, right. 84, you know, Kobe right. Bryant, 823, 78. Like that just mattered. Or Tiger Woods, you know, yeah. he was at one point he was known for being young and at one point he's known for being old. So when people asked how old they were, I knew his exact birthday because I just learned yeah. that. And I you did that for Google hundreds it. of people. Like, Even when I could Google, Google it, it I, st- I would just commit it to memory. Oh, yeah. So I learned that for hundreds of people. So what's your favorite baseball card, like specific card if you have a go-to? Ooh. Or if it's easier, what's your favorite set from those years? Yeah. Boy, favorite baseball card I can think about all day, so we don't have the time for that eternal. But yeah. favorite set, uh, 1979 was my first year I was, that I really, really collected baseball cards. I was in uh, 
I was uh, six going on seven. And that was when I was buying my packs. And any time I came across 25 cents, I was going to the corner store and buying the packs of cards. And the thrill of opening up a card with the all-star across the bottom when the, mm-hmm. the stars from the 78 all-star game are listed. So it's George Brett or a Red Sox like Fisk or, or Jim Rice. Seeing that all-star was awesome. Or Steve Garvey. And then 85 was a great one. A lot of great rookies. They had the Olympic team in there. And 83 was the first set that I collected another great rookie class uh Gwen Boggs others where I got my I got the set all by myself just buying cards after card after cards sure um, and I eventually filled in almost all those sets just through hard work <laughs> and perseverance yeah. um but that was like 83 was when I the great when I finally completed that set that was a, a sense of accomplishment when I was 11 years old so a couple ESPN ones to wrap it up. You worked the 11 p.m. Sports Center with Keith Olbermann, Dan Patrick back in the day. Do you have a story that you could share from those days? Yeah, I was the last researcher, a full-time researcher on that show. Um, so I took over maybe with the six months remaining in Keith's contract. Okay. Um, they were just in general, they were incredibly talented. Uh, they worked incredibly hard. Um, very, very different. Uh, Keith was an amazing writer, you know, quick-witted, acerbic. Uh, Dan was also very funny, but uh, much different needs. Um, Dan relied on the researcher for so much. Keith was very independent, um, just totally different people that worked really well on camera and had such great chemistry. So I just learned, I mean, they cared so much about the product. I learned so much from them, just working with them. Um, most of my stories involve Keith just basically, you know, fighting with management and, you know, really it was, he was often on the air at that time and he had been suspended a couple of times. So he was, uh, it was tough uh, working with him because it was just, uh, you know, kind of a little radioactive around here, but it was an amazing show to work on. And finally, what's a kind of, how did I get here moment that you had at ESPN weather? I mean, it could be right when you started, it could be more recent, just kind of, you know, one of those when you just kind of shake your head and, and say, wow. I've been so lucky to have so many over over the years. Um, being at the Heisman Trophy in the Downtown Athletic Club uh, a year out of college mm-hmm. when I didn't have a plan of what I wanted to do with my life and being in the elevator with just Eddie George and a, or hanging out with Danny Werfel, like with like, two other people, like, yeah. who, who am I? And they're my age. <laughs> right. It was just really weird. So that was really cool, um, being working on the Heisman and the access to that. And then the first time I got to cover a World Series for baseball tonight, even though it was the – I'm a Red Sox fan, as you probably understand from earlier answers. Yep. But being at Yankee Stadium on the day of game one for the Subway Series, and I was in the stadium on a Saturday morning, like very, very early, and I didn't see a single soul inside that stadium other than me. Mm-hmm. The bunting was hung and the red, white, and blue. And I, I had the stadium to myself. And there have been so many World Series played at that exact venue. And as yeah. a baseball fan, you know, I took all these, you know, camera photos. I have the film somewhere. But like <laughs> that just felt like, yeah. I, you know, That's amazing it. to me that I was being paid to do this. Yeah. That was a real eye-opening moment. That's great. The passion really comes through. And those are good stories. And that'll wrap things up for us. Jeff Bennett, Vice President of ESPN Stats and Information. Thanks for joining us here on Expected Value. Thanks for having me, Paul. Thanks again to Jeff Bennett, Vice President of ESPN Stats and Information Group, for joining us here on Expected Value. You can see the analytics team's work online at ESPN.com slash analytics and follow at ESPN Stats Info on Twitter to see a sampling of work there. Back in the True Media Network studios, I'm Paul Carr, joined by True Media Senior Director Albert Larcata. 
Albert, we both work for Jeff at ESPN. He hired me for the research team in 08. He hired you from the data side to the analytics team when he started that in 2010. And I want to ask you about that. But first, let me, I want to emphasize something that Jeff kind of left unsaid. And that's just simply that a sports media company having the sports analytics team isn't really normal. I think most networks have smaller versions of the research department working with on-air shows and talent and things like that. To my knowledge, no one has a 10-person analytics team working on developing and publicizing new and better metrics. So let me say all that as a lead-in to you. As someone who was in on kind of the ground floor with that department, what was the first year of the team like from your perspective? Yeah, so it was uh, it was very interesting. As Jeff said, I, I came from the data side um, and joined Dean and Alok on the uh, on the team in 2010. So he he kind of went over it at a high level. But yeah, our first year was a lot about QBR building the various models that go into it, expected point model, win probability model, the division of credit models were where I focus more on. But yeah, the communication side too, he, he got into that. We're, we were brand new. You know, Show groups and talent and producers kind of have their ways. They know how to produce. They know what material they can have and content and all that. And we were kind of coming up with this new stuff that they had in their toolbox, which is the whole idea of the group, but it was kind of new to them. So Mm-hmm. There's a lot of education, a lot of communication. I, I think we we released QBR right before the 2011 NFL season. And I, I recall having something on the order of like 20 one-on-ones with every person in the research staff who's going to do anything with football that year. Might have even had one with you. I can't remember. Yeah, probably. But um, yeah, so anyone who worked on NFL Countdown, NFL Live, Mike and Mike, Numbers Never Like, all, all, all the shows that were going on at that time. It was just like an hour with them going down bullet points. What do you need to know? This is, you know, we weren't getting into like modeling and anything very statty. It was just, what do I need to tell the talent when they say this? What do I tell the producer when I'm trying to pitch this? So there's a lot of that going on. Um, And and I think, I was just gonna say, I think that it goes to kind of the communication. We talk about this on a lot of, of these shows and even something I was reading, I think it was about Frank Reich, the Colts coach and how, uh, you know, they talked about a lot about analytics on the NBC broadcast Sunday night, and he had said in an article how his first year at the Eagles, they had a lot of these things, and he wasn't really into them, but as he just kind of sat and talked to the people and learned not the nitty gritty of the models, but just kind of what they're getting at and what they can do with these things, he was slowly kind of, you know, converted is the wrong word, but he just came to see the use of looking at the numbers and using these in decision making and things like that. And that's that's kind of what you're talking about. It, you, it's work. You can't just expect people who've never seen things like this before, or even if they have and aren't quite sure what to do, do with them. You just can't expect them to go from day one and be all in on something that you've been working a year on or whatever. It takes time and communication. Exactly. It, it's a totally different process when you're trying to impress a crowd like Nessus a couple weeks ago when you build a Nessus presentation you're trying to impress you know the academic types the, the more kind of hardcore stat people this is not that this is yep. trying to and not even impress just sort of lay the groundwork with former players former coaches who are most of the talent at, at ESPN you know how how can this help you like I'm trying to make you sound smarter just say things and you know get into stories and get into players and teams in a more interesting and analytically sound way without saying the word analytics. Yeah. Beyond that QBR stuff the first year, what else do you kind of remember in the early going of the analytics team as you guys got going? Other than QBR, there wasn't much. That was what we did a lot of that. But um, yeah, there were these one-off things and probably every week uh, there would be one or two things come in that were like, 
uh, I remember during the summer, must have been summer 2011, there's a, I, I want to say it was a, either Reds game or Royals game. Some team hit a home run, say to right field, I don't even remember. And then the next batter hit a home run, and the guy who caught the first home run caught the, the, the second home run yeah, right Yeah, same after. fan, right, yeah. Same fan, yeah. And so, you know, some sports center producer, someone the next morning had this request that came through Jeff that was like, what are, what's the chance of that happening? The same fan catching a ball <laughs> back to back home runs. So I spent like like half my day, you know, researching, OK, what was the attendance? What percentage of the attendance was in the outfield? What's the mm-hmm. percent chance home runs are going to be hit there? And I came up with some number. I don't even remember what it was. But yep. yeah, and there was another one. Um, that must have been the 2011 uh, Final Four. Butler and UConn were in the final. There's a, a producer, um, Mike and Mike Liam, and his mom, they always used to have on the show almost as a joke because she knew nothing yep. about American sports. So she, she did a bracket every year. And her bracket that year had Butler and UConn in the final, which was crazy. Yeah. Uh, and th- they had her choose the final score. And the final score in that game, I don't remember what it was, but it was crazy low. Yes. Uh, it was like both teams shot under 30% or something. It was ugly. And, and she had the final score right to within two points for each team. And so a similar request that came in. So what's the chance that Liam's mom would have got those two teams in the final and got the score to with that with, within that margin? So it became a probability question again, like, you know, what's the chance UConn made the final? What's the chance Butler made the final? What's the chance given their offensive efficiency, defense efficiency that they would have scored that number of points? And eventually ended up being like one in some million chance yeah. that any random person would have come up with that. Yep. And so that went on Mike and Mike and sprayed around all the, the shows that morning. So there were little probability questions like that. And, and that, I mean, that goes to communication in a way, because I think I know like producers learn, Hey, okay, they can answer these questions and, you know, do it and, and have some fun with it along the way. Then if we can trust them to do the simple stuff like that, then, Hey, maybe there's something to this QBR thing. And so it's kind of a, a backdoor way to get in with them and have them buy into what the whole team is doing. I think mm-hmm. totally right. One thing I wanted to touch on that Jeff mentioned is asked him why they started the analytics team. And he said, they wanted to basically better represent what front offices are doing and how they were thinking. And I think that's a, a key thing. This is kind of more from a media perspective. People will, you know, fans, friends, whatever, will ask me, why are we seeing this stat on TV? I don't understand it. Or why are, suddenly is everybody talking about whatever defensive runs saved or whatever it might be? And that's always my answer is the point to these new stats and metrics is basically that teams are using these numbers to make their decisions and shape the future of the game. And I think the media, if they're doing their job well, they have an element of responsibility to communicate these changes back to fans. I mean, way back when it was batting average and home runs and RBI, and that was it. And you could teams pretty much use those to determine player value. And that's why they were the main stats used by media. But now, you know, a few years ago, the Cubs gave Jason Hayward a hundred and whatever million dollars. And his offense's numbers were pretty mediocre, but his defensive metrics were great. And so you can kind of explain this is what they're thinking. Like a true media, we work with 20 baseball teams, a third of the NFL, 50 soccer clubs. So we know a lot of these things, kind of what the conversations internally at clubs are. And I think sometimes people who are in the weeds a little bit like us forget that the general public's not always aware. And that's fine. And what it does is gives ESPN the opportunity to gradually change the conversation. And it's, it's all part of just this natural evolution of sports and media as more and more data is available. Yep, that's exactly right. All right. Thanks, Albert. I think we could share ESPN stories and talk about our experience there for hours. Maybe we will have to do a show about that at some point in the future. For now, we'll wrap up this edition of Expected Value. Thanks again to Jeff Bennett, Vice President of ESPN's Stats and Information Group, for joining us on the show. 
If you missed any of our previous episodes, you can catch up in the archives. We had two shows last week talking with Nessus presenters about their research involving player tracking data in both soccer and the NFL. Before that, Phillies pitcher Jared Hughes and the NFL's director of football analytics, Michael Lopez. Our guests next week will be ESPN soccer analyst Taylor Twelman, whom I worked with for almost a decade at ESPN. We've had some good back and forth about stats and analytics and such, and we'll be sharing some of those conversations and looking at things from a broadcaster's point of view, along with looking at the MLS season ahead of next week's playoffs. A reminder to subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get the podcast. We appreciate everyone who has done so already. Also, follow us on Twitter and send us feedback at True Media Sports or at Paul Carr. On behalf of Albert Larcata and everyone here at True Media Networks, I am Paul Carr. Thank you for listening to Expected Value, a podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. We'll be right back.